0: I think to, to just think about technology as a kind of customer entertainment facility <laughs> would suggest to me that, that retailers should start thinking about becoming theme parks as opposed to for the retailers. They're not. They're in the business of selling product. And if they can't provide that product at the right time, in the right place, with the right style or purpose, then technology is the entertainment of, of people is, is really secondary.
1: You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. In this new world of brick and mortar, it seems like reinvention is the name of the game. It seems like every day we're seeing another case of a new store concept, a reimagined brand or a retailer trying to adapt its store experience to accommodate new services, fulfillment operations, and so much more. That's why we've seen modular store design really come to the forefront as a way for retailers to test new concepts, switch them out, and really find not just what works for the brand, but what is optimal for the customer. I recently sat down with Mark and Ricky Landini of Landini Associates to talk about what's driving this new era of store reinvention, the role of tech and how it should support customers at every stage of the process rather than creating new hurdles, and most of all, how retailers can embrace modularity to bring their reinvention to life so if you're looking to adapt and evolve your store experience and are attempting to be a bit more agile this conversation is for you thank you so much for being on the show it's great to have you thank you for having us so uh for those listening now who don't know Landini Associates and the work you do. Why don't we start there? Why don't you share a little bit about your firm and the work that you do?
0: So we've been established in Australia now for 28 years. We came from London. And uh, during that time, we I was creative director of Conrad Design Group. And uh, previous to that, Uh, Fitch & Company, which uh, at that time was the first publicly listed global design company. We um, are a small 25-strong multidisciplinary design company. Primarily we work in retail, although we also do a lot of work in hospitality. And we tend to work all over the world. Most of our work is outside of Australia, which makes, in some places, Sydney a dumb place to live. Prior to the pandemic, we were spending most of our times in airports. As I said, I think about 80% of our clients are, are global. Excellent.
1: On your site, what, what really caught my attention was that with your work, you're reinventing normal. I'm curious, can you define what that means or entails exactly? Because obviously everyone's talking about reinvention and new normal, so I, I found it fascinating that that was kind of embedded into your messaging and your approach
2: yes well i mean we have been doing what we call reinventing normal well before the pandemic and i think you know how we would define it is just looking at how a retailer operates in a totally new way and that's not reinventing for the sake of reinventing i mean if it ain't broke don't fix it but it's sometimes that retailers just do things because that's what everybody else is doing or that's what they've always done. And this is just a fresh way of looking at things to give them a better outcome.
0: Yeah, I mean, as Ricky says, oftentimes people look sideways or backwards before they look forward. And really, reinventing normal is just a way of re-examining whether the starting point was the correct starting point. And if it was, then you evolve from there. But um, sometimes the starting point is formed by a number of mistakes along the way in ways that could be done better. But I mean, that changes also almost by day to day. For example, Amazon was only formed 10,000 days ago. It's a sort of nanosecond, really. And so it's had an amazing impact on, on us all as a global race of citizens. And you need to take that into account these days. And a lot of retailers haven't. Uh, They've been lazy. They've uh, thought that it would go away. They've uh, been distracted by operational matters and so on and so forth. There's many, many reasons, but normal changes almost, you know, as I say, weekly. And so you really need to kind of address what the normal is and then work out from there as opposed to necessarily saying, well, you know, we've always done it this way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it definitely aligns with some of the challenges that we've seen emerge within a lot of retail organizations. And I mean, even prior to the pandemic, the notion of reinvention was very appealing. It was something that alluded to differentiation, guiding or leading in an industry. But now I feel like people are looking at this notion of reinvention a little bit differently. Some are looking at it as table stakes. I think Mark to your point, a lot of folks really had that mindset of this is the way we always have done things, so why change? I think people are feeling a bit more pressure or a bit more urgency to rethink that. But I'm curious what what you're seeing in your conversations, in your work with clients right now. Where where are you seeing the most focus or attention being placed among your retail clients?
0: Well, I think, you know, a lot of them are trying to survive, as you well know. I mean, the pandemic has been uh, enormously impactful to everyone in, and the way that we live. And I think even this short period of time that we've been uh, living through it, it's fundamentally changed people's value systems and the way that they live and indeed where they live and, and where they can live. So a lot of retailers have spent uh, the last year um, sort of assessing that, but mainly from an operational point of view, most of them because they've had to change the way that they function because of the pandemic. That said, a number of them are also looking and have been looking pre-pandemic at what the future might hold within the context of technology and so on and so forth. And I think that's uh, an interesting area, which perhaps we'll see the results of that thinking, you know, towards the end of this year and earlier next year. Certainly many of our projects that we started pre-pandemic, you would have thought when you see them, Had been influenced by the pandemic in fact they were influenced by forward thinking and intelligent retailers that predicted that things would have to change and therefore started looking at how that might pan out so you know there's been a combination in summary of panic and uh, restructuring most retailers are very heavily operationally driven which a lot of people don't take into account certainly a lot of designers don't take it into account And it's quite difficult to slow that machine down and and restart it. So one of the most important things that many of our retailers have been looking at our clients has been the restructuring of their internal organizations to allow for change. Change doesn't just happen. A good idea doesn't get implemented if there isn't an organization behind it to implement it. So the sort of organizational structure of retailers is something that's probably been happening behind the scene more than we see. And certainly the aspirational use of technology and the the appropriate use of technology has been explored by a number of retailers, some, I think, rather foolishly, others um, more intelligently. And I think Amazon's a really good example of that with their Just Walk Out experimentation, which has been probably going on for about 10 years.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good point, Mark, that I, I want to drill a little bit deeper into because, you know, in our world at retail touch points, we try to look at both the science of store experience, which is largely you know the tech, the processes, as you say, but also the art. We have design retail under our wing. So we do try to look at the design at face value, but also how the brand kind of comes alive through aesthetics and other elements. And I looked at your your portfolio of work, your offerings, and and you seem to cover the gamut. So I, I would love to hear your perspectives as far as how brands and retailers are trying to strike that balance. I mean, if at all, I mean, I'm sure priorities may vary depending on the category of retailer, their priorities, but I mean, how are they balancing that art and that science of retail, so to speak? Are they really looking inward, looking at how they're collaborating internally to determine what approaches to take? I mean, that that cultural point, Mark, I, I think really struck me and I'm wondering how that impacts the decision-making process now?
0: I don't think that we would separate art and commerce. I mean, um, Mr. Selfridge, a hundred years ago, wrote a lovely little book. It's very easy to read. You can read it on a short train journey. It's called The Art of Commerce. I wouldn't distinguish design from that. For us, design is a cognitive process that is uh, one of examination and then invention. And if aesthetics play a role in that, which of course they do, then it is just a slice of the cake. It's not the entire cake, and it shouldn't be separated. So the way things look should be influenced by not the subtleties or the subjective realities of the designer or the retailer, but by whether or not they're affected commercially. Um, As you said earlier, whether they differentiate you or whether they're just a fashion-following trend that actually throws you back into a pack of people and competitors that are all doing the same thing. So it does play a significant role in how you look, but it's really only a a slice of, of that.
2: And we've always said even for many years that the technology should be sort of behind the scenes and you shouldn't have technology just for the sake of technology. It's got to have a purpose. It's got to provide a solution for the retailer and but more importantly for the customer.
0: Well, I think that's a very good point. Um, A lot of people are, I mean, I think a classic example of that is self scan in supermarkets. The thing that people hate most about supermarkets is queuing up for the checkouts. And so, what retailers are, a number of retailers are looking at now is actually transferring that labor intensive process back onto the customer by allowing them to. scan the products themselves with their phones. (laughs) You get
2: very frustrated by that. (laughs) If
0: that's all they're doing, then really it's quite a kind of mean way of treating your customers because essentially you're saying is do our job yourselves. I think what Amazon Go are doing uh, with their Just Walk Out technology is actually, as Ricky says, using technology to aid the customer and give them something, which is the ability to use both hands Mm. while shopping (laughs) Uh, and not have to pack and unpack and pack and unpack and pack and unpack or scan and pack and scan and pack with only one hand free. And I'm not quite sure how you push a, a shopping trolley around with one hand pick with the other and scan with the other. It seems to me to be a rather ridiculous way of making the shopping experience more fun. It doesn't. In the short term, it might seem novel, but the reality is, is that it's just a transfer of labor back onto the customer. And I don't think that's a very good idea. I think what, what Amazon have always done is only develop ideas that have significant customer benefit, whether that's financial or, in this instance, physical. But as Ricky says, you don't see the technology. I mean, yeah, you can see the cameras in the ceiling. Why would they try and hide them? But the technology actually provides you with a completely different experience. And that experience will actually affect the built environment because no one's really discussed this up until now. But if you can just walk out anywhere without paying, That means you don't have to walk out via the checkouts. And consequently, that also means that you can just walk in anywhere. Mm. And if you can just walk in anywhere, you don't need a front door. And if you don't need a front door and can have multiple front doors, then your car park can actually be arranged around the 360 degrees perimeter of the building. And that provides you with a lot of challenges and opportunities uh, from a layout point of view.
1: Wow. I, I really like the way you unpacked that. And I, and I really appreciate the nuance in the example of why the Amazon Go model is so powerful and so effective for the customer, whereas other more, I guess, traditional, I guess you could say, checkout experiences, self-checkout experiences may seem convenient, but may have some hidden bumps or or issues that may reflect poorly on the customer experience. It it just goes to show, I think, how subtle some of these principles are and and how carefully it all needs to be thought out. I don't know. It's just something the way you you laid that inside out. It's just, I really appreciate the, the nuance there, I guess, in the process.
0: Well, it goes back to my earlier point that organizations have to change their fundamental internal operating structures before they can actually reinvent themselves. And there's no point doing something that, that they can't manage. There is no organization that is investing in the same way that, that Amazon does. If Jeff Bezos thinks something's a good idea, then he will invest billions of dollars into it. There is no other organization on the planet that has that kind of what I would call benign dictatorship in their sort of operating principle. By being able to do that and take those kind of investment decisions almost on the run, many of which might fail, they're able to do that. Now, most organizations, when it comes to payment, will have a computing systems team, someone who buys the checkouts, and and that's how it's done. What Mr. Bezos does is think laterally all the time, and and I think that's, that's really
1: interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the tech component of store strategy, the top of mind tech, you know what retailers are thinking about because for a while there, you know in our coverage at, at least and I'd love for you to tell me otherwise, we were seeing a lot of conversations around tech being a driver of in-store engagement and entertainment and it was a conversation of how long can we get people to stay in the store. Obviously with covid, the conversation shifted to how can we use technology to make this experience as quick, seamless, and safe as possible for everyone who's involved in the process. And I'm almost wondering if we're slowly getting to the point where the worlds are almost coming together, meaning we're still going to try and keep safety and the immediate needs of the consumer top of mind. So, Ricky, to your point around being thoughtful and intentional about those decisions, but also try to add some of that delight into the store and that excitement in a way. And I'm curious what what you're seeing in the way of technology's role in the store. Has it changed over the past year? Will it continue to change and what retailers should be focusing on right now?
0: I don't think you can actually separate, unless you're quite naive, the use of technology in the supply chain to the customer experience. The back of house that people don't see is fundamental to every retailer and some of the most interesting developments that we've seen globally come out of fashion for example you know uniqlo h&m zara people like that use technology not just to sell things but or rather you know at point of sale you know within the store but to provide a supply chain that very quickly takes fashion and turns it into product and brings it into the store so that the stores are very exciting and refreshed constantly and always up to date in terms of trends that's all done by a very sophisticated back-of-house manufacturing technology system that no one sees. I think to, to just think about technology as a kind of customer entertainment facility <laughs> would suggest to me that, that retailers should start thinking about becoming theme parks as opposed to the retailers. They're not. They're in the business of selling product. And if they can't provide that product at the right time, in the right place, with the right style or purpose then technology is the entertainment of of people is, is really secondary.
2: And I think, you know, sometimes retailers have to just think that they have to get back to being retailers. Nothing beats fabulous customer service, and that's the same whether you're in a physical store or whether you're online. I don't want to talk to a bot online because it doesn't really know what I'm saying most of the time. People will be delighted by being made to feel special by a retailer in whichever way that might be and sometimes technology can be a bit gimmicky which might be appealing the first time that you go to a store or the first time you go online but I think that soon wears off if it's not supported by you know good customer service.
0: Yeah I I completely agree I think um, the fundamentals um, you know when you reinvent normal oftentimes you just go back to basics. We had credit a long time before we had credit cards. My mother used to go to a local grocer and they asked her when she presented them with her written order, whether she would like that put on the slate or whether she, which is an old fashioned word for credit, or whether she would like to pay for it there. And then they would also ask her whether she would like to take it uh, with her or whether they, she would <laughs> like um, a boy to deliver it on a bike and at what time, um, mm-hmm. you know, none of these things that we now enjoy on, online are new. They're just, different delivery systems that have been enabled by technology. But the joy of actually being recognized when you go into that store, my mother used to be greeted by the retailer with her name of choice, and they would know what her preferences were. They Mm. would know what her taste values were probably what she'd bought before, And they didn't need technology to do that. But as the world is getting more complicated and as we actually get more types of shampoo, Mm. you need to actually understand what those preferences are. I mean, shampoo is a really good example, right? I mean, in those days, and I'm only talking 50 years ago, it's a nanosecond, there was only one shampoo. Now there's so many because marketing has taken over and FMCG rules the world. We all believe that we have to have one which is completely and utterly personalised to our needs. And so therefore it gets more complicated because product gets more complicated. But some of the more intelligent retailers in the world are actually understanding that. And I think Aldi is a really good example of that, where they only have one can of baked beans. Well, actually two, they have an organic version as well. So your choices as a customer are helped by, if you like, the curation that the retailer has done for you uh, before you even step into the store. And through that curation and through that simplification of choice, they also bring to the market and bring to bear incredibly low prices because they're buying in in bulk which far exceeds the bulk that you can buy when you're buying 100 different cans of baked beans
2: and i think also you know one thing the pandemic has influenced greatly is the idea of local and because we've all been spending a lot more time in our own suburbs at home and whatever during lockdown people are using local a lot more and those local stores don't really have don't often have a lot of technology or, or things behind them but people want to want to feel connected they really want to feel connected to things because you know we have been through this sort of period of isolation often so I think that larger retailers when they're thinking about their technology they do have to take that into consideration and make it more personal and
1: now a word from our sponsor
0: decades and for the world's largest airlines, banks, semiconductor manufacturers and telecommunication companies, TIBCO has unlocked the power of real-time data for faster, smarter decisions and competitive advantage. The TIBCO Connected Intelligence Platform seamlessly connects any application or data source, intelligently unifies data for greater access, trust and control, and confidently predicts outcomes in real-time and at scale. Innovation and superior capabilities are made possible by TIBCO.
1: I do want to get a little bit deeper into some of the trends that we're seeing, get your takes on them, and you know what the opportunities possibly are for some of our listeners right now. Because I know over the past few months, we've been covering a lot of emerging or evolving trends in the store experience world obviously appointment based shopping has been around for a long time in retail but we saw the narrative change to you know revolve around social distancing guidelines and safety measures that retailers were putting in place using it as a vehicle to kind of keep business going, but also support that one-to-one personal connection that that we were just talking about. But we're also seeing some other, you know, in-store activations or in-store experiences kind of emerge. Like even brands are doing like content studios now, like these are elements of the store that allow people to engage with the brand, create content on social media, and kind of turn the store into a destination of sorts. Would love your take, just because you both ha- are being so upfront and, and honest around like how you perceive the role of technology and, and how retailers should be thinking about their store strategy. One, like, what are your thoughts on, on these two or any other trends that you're hearing a lot about now? And I guess the second part of that question is with all of these trends, I mean, how do retailers, I guess, sift through, I don't want to say noise, but sift through all of the hot trends and headlines and and really determine what makes the most sense for their business?
0: Well, I think, you know, when it comes to content studios, you'd really have to ask someone under 30 (laughs) uh, who gives of that because, you know, I don't um, and, and, and therefore I'm not the target for those kind of things. I think what people have to realize is that most retailers run on very small margins. Time and motion becomes an incredibly important part of the operating of their businesses. And that anything that costs has a labor cost attached to it that doesn't significantly drive sales has to be seen as a marketing exercise as opposed to a retailing one. So therefore, if you're talking about bricks and mortar, giving up space to a a live studio which can send Instagrams around the world has to be considered to be a a relevant and valuable marketing tool as opposed to an operational retail one. And and I'm not to say that it doesn't actually have value, because I think it does. But there is a lot of talk about pop-ups and activities that aren't really related to the day-to-day retailing. are more to do with with the external marketing of the brand and if the space allows then by all means do it but they are very labor intensive and they can actually impact and affect your bottom line there are better ways of doing it i mean for example we recently designed a supermarket in italy called esselong and they're enormously successful and so they had about 30 checkouts along the front of their store where if they were a department store they would have their shop windows It made no sense at all to present in the most valuable space of the store the thing that customers hate the most. So we convinced them to turn those through 90 degrees and hide them down the side of the store, which required us to turn the gondolas through 90 degrees as well. And what we replaced them with was stuff that was happening in the store already, but behind walls, such as the bakery department. It was hidden upstairs, such as the kitchens that were making food that was being sold in the store or actually at the cafe that the store had already And we put those where the checkouts were in a glass box. Now, that actually saved labor because there were more actors and, you know, uh, sorry, less actors and more theater because the baker could also do other things as opposed to just bake. And therefore, the, the labor costs were lower and the theater was much higher. And it was also a visible expression of what they actually were doing already, but hiding. So I suppose it's a long winded way of saying that there are things that people do enjoy seeing and can entertain you that are often hidden as we sanitized retail over the years. Markets are much more fun than supermarkets, and you have to to, to ask yourself why and what it is that we like about markets. Well, what we like about markets is the fact that we can go and gossip and gander and And gather and try and bump into things and be bumped into you can see things being delivered and taken away, you can see people arguing and shouting and trying to be heard. That doesn't happen in a lot of supermarkets. And I really wonder why, because they do actually possess all those activities, but they've just hidden. them. So I don't think that you need to create artificial stimulation when the real stimulation is there to be seen. I think Hema, which is part of Alibaba in in China, is a really good example of that, where they're using their supermarket stores as uh, distribution centers. And they have teams of people fulfilling orders, not from a hidden warehouse, but actually from the store itself. And then they throw that stuff into into shopping baskets that fly around the ceiling, a bit like they do at b Photos in New York, and deliver them to a motorbike, which then takes it to you. So that activity, which is normally sanitized and hidden, um, often in, in a separate location, is actually happening in the store. It's very entertaining. It's very theatrical, but it's not costing the retailer any more money no. than it would do. In fact, less, less than if they had a, a warehouse space, as Ricky says.
1: I love those examples, and, and I think it really shows the value of just like rethinking the entire space, what happens in the store, and looking for those existing opportunities and, and ways to reconfigure the store experience around them and, and make them shine in a way. So thank you so much for sharing those examples, and I think it transitions in, in a way to the next few questions I, I have for you both before we close things out around the conversations we're hearing Around agile store design, so this kind of ties to my point earlier around some of the different activations and experiences that that retailers are are trying to test in store. They're trying to find, you know, the best way to try them, and if they don't work, how do we turn them over into something else? Or Mark, to your point, how do we repurpose our space and present it in a different way to let those hidden moments shine? I mean. I feel like, and and I'm not a design expert, I feel like that modular approach is has probably existed for a while, but again, it's really coming to the forefront now because retailers are trying to be agile, test and learn, and figure out what their consumers really want now. But I mean, is this a long-term approach? Is this something that should be kind of tied into the way retailers assess? And revise and improve their store experiences. Like, I just love your take on where this particular trend, I guess you could call it a trend, is going.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the best retailers in the world are agile. They've been doing, they've been agile for years. And really, that's driven by seasonality or by promotional activity that they planned and, and they have spaces for. I think, to and every retailer should actually be experimenting. I, I urge retailers to find a way of doing that in real life again i go back to aldi i mean they actually have four aisles in their store and one of them is dedicated entirely to products that are bought in every wednesday and every saturday they're specials you know they could be anything from a chainsaw to a motorcycle helmet to a skiing wear which are enormously good value generate fantastic margins for the retailer and enormous amounts of excitement for customers who are reading about them online or in a paper-printed catalogue and then you know, literally queue up and, in some cases, fight um, for those products as they're introduced every Wednesday. And when they're reintroduced on Saturday, the ones that were introduced on Wednesday are moved to the back so that they are beginning to clear. Well, I, I'm told by Ricky that it's the other way around, but the point is, is, uh, is made. So I think you can build in agility. I don't think agility should trip up your day-to-day operations. So by all means, build it in as an experimental thing. By all means, plan it as a marketing exercise and promotional exercise. But often uh, it's done in a way that is operationally inefficient and trips up the operators. And I keep going back to operating, but it really is, you cannot actually have a new design that doesn't operate. And if operators are not involved in the process of reinvention, then you really might as well not start
1: Yeah, that's actually a great transition to my follow-up question for you because I know we spoke a little bit earlier around organizations rethinking the way they collaborate internally, how they bring ideas not just up in discussion but into action, but there's always – a disconnect between, you know, what people imagine or hope to happen inside the executive team or inside the meeting room versus what actually happens in the store. So to your point around, you know, actually operating these spaces and making agile a reality. So, I mean, do you have any practical best practices or insights around how to kind of Close that disconnect and make agile work. Like what's required from a store structure standpoint, if anything, you know, to make this a reality?
0: Well, I mean, it's difficult to to talk about it without showing it. But we recently reinvented mass market fashion retailing, um, low end cost fashion retailing here in Australia and in New Zealand. And our brief from the retailer was to make it as agile as possible. They said, well, we need these three ways and two ways and four way racks that we can move around mid floor and so on and so forth. And we looked at that and said, well, why do you need those things? Because, well, we need flexibility. But the trouble with flexibility is that it's often badly lit because no one is allowed now by law to climb up on a stepladder and change the angle of lighting, nor are they actually well qualified to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So the more agile you make something, the the more confusing you can make it. And unless you put in lighting technicians and plan maps of how things should be merchandised, then building in too much agility actually provides the opposite, which is actually badly lit, poorly merchandised,
2: badly collected Mm -hmm. mess.
0: Um, so what we did with, with Glassens was we actually just built almost supermarket walls um, throughout the store. Every new collection is launched in the front facing outwards. And so it, they're
2: like static wardrobes. They're,
0: they? they're static wardrobes and the great thing about a static wardrobe is you can actually control the lighting onto it so everything that's put in there by the merchants is brilliantly lit. Everything starts at the front of the store and moves towards the back. That's a, a principle but previously it was done on on merchandising systems that could be moved, we decided not to be able to move them. The net result of that is that their sales per square meter are now four hundred percent higher in every Westfield centre that they're in. Four hundred percent higher per square meter their sales are than their nearest international competitor. It's a significant and fundamental reinvention of normal that's delivered as both aesthetic and commercial results. Because if you buy a T-shirt for five dollars, you want it to look good, so. Don't light it badly, light it well and celebrate the fact. And that's, you know, I think H&M again, Zara, Uniqlo our retailers that understand that. And so our reinvention of how to display things has provided a central control of how things are merchandised on the floor. It allows them to, to introduce new, new things every week, every day even. But they're all centrally controlled and perfectly lit when they get there.
2: Yes, and it, yes it's easy for the sales assistants to, to merchandise it. They don't have to have you know, people coming all the time to check up on it. It's much easier to operate.
0: Better for insurance companies because they don't have to pay out for people falling off step ladders as well. <laughs>
1: This is fabulous. And I guess my final closing question around this is, are the KPIs that are tracked or or the measures for success, do they vary depending on what the core objectives are for, you know, a certain layout or say it's a content studio? Like, is there a process to like marrying KPIs to your objectives to like measure or gauge the success of taking this agile approach? Or are there agile metrics, so to speak, that that retailers need to be tracking to determine if this approach makes sense for them?
0: Well, I mean, every retailer has to have a KPI system in in place so that they can measure their business. I mean, it's not for us to tell them how to do that. We can influence that process by using examples like we just said, but you'd be surprised how many retailers don't. It's very important, I believe, to have what we call a benign dictatorship as opposed to too many teams running off doing different things the banal dictatorship is a sort of centralized methodology for doing things that everyone can work towards. And the simpler things are, the better people in differential teams can understand what the core objectives are. Without that sort of centralized um, dictatorship, then it's very difficult to, to do that. And I think, you know, department stores are a really good example of that, where buyers have actually taken over and become lazy by filling department stores since the 70s. It only happened with brands. You know, it's much easier to buy a few brands and track them in a space and say, well, you get on with it. The joy of a department store historically was that there were merchants who used to travel around the world and find stuff that we couldn't get locally and delight us with that stuff. And that comes back to curation and sort of intelligent retailing and making excitement through the product because people don't buy experiences Unless it's a high-end brand, and a lot of people are forgetting that it's that it's the product that people go to the stores to buy, and really it's just a question of deciding whether, whether that product is appropriate or not. And going back to Ricky's point about localization, I think there's a lot of opportunities for department stores to to almost become nationalistic. I, you know, whilst I'm not a fan of that, you know, politically, I think from a manufacturing point of view and from a, a local point of view. To actually rediscover products that that are made in your country or in in your town and to tell the stories around those is a delightful process that a lot of people have forgotten. And I think department stores could learn from that absolutely, fundamentally, and become curators again, as opposed to really just shopping centres.
1: I love that. So uh Mark Ricky, thank you again so much for taking the time out. Really some fascinating takeaways here. But before I let you go, I always try to close out these conversations with a few action items, to-dos, I guess you could say, given the topic that we're speaking on for a specific episode. So in this case, you know, obviously we we've talked quite a bit around reinvention, what that means at the store level shared some ideas along the way, but do you have any closing tips or recommendations for the listeners who are maybe in the process of reinventing their stores or are thinking about the future of their store experiences, but maybe don't know where to start or you know how to ensure that they're taking the right steps or going down the right path? I mean, any any recommendations for them? Well, I would say, you know,
2: I guess what we were sort of saying earlier, start with the fundamentals, start with a good product, a good service. A good brief. A good brief. If it's a, if it's a bricks and a mortar, you know, store, a nice environment. And that will give people a good experience. Yes, use technology, but use it, use it wisely. Use it in a way that's going to enhance either the operations or the customer experience.
0: I mean, my, my answer to that question, building on Ricky's point, is to actually make sure that your briefs are understandable. I think a good brief should be, if possible, one word. We, with Essay decided that the brief should be dimmi or dimmi una cosa, which is Italian for show me or tell me. Um and everything that we did in the store was really then informed by that, which is to show people and tell them what they do and what their products are and how, how great they are.
2: I mean, I think that's a that's a really good example on on that one, because they, as Mark said earlier, already had these these fabulous manufacturing processes. You know, they're they're making lasagna that, you know, was their grandmother's recipe and stuff like that. But nobody kind of knew. So when they actually looked at what they already had, they could utilize that without. Having to do yeah. more fancy. And
0: the thing about briefs, particularly in large organizations, is that they should be no more than three paragraphs, or they mm. should actually talk about the benefit of what you're going to do as opposed to the process within which you're going to go through doing it. And if they're not, if they're too complicated, or they're too long, or they're too wordy, if they're a document more than one page, then no one's going to read it and therefore no one's going to understand it and therefore no one's going to be able to implement it within a large complex organization so keep it simple stupid really is Mm. is my advice
1: love it what a way to close it out mark ricky thank you again so much for taking the time out it was lovely meeting you and uh, of course talking shop with you thank you so much
0: thank you Love it to meet you too alicia
1: And uh, to all of you, if you have any follow-up questions for Mark and Ricky, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at rtouchpoints or at retail touchpoints on LinkedIn. We would love to have an ongoing discussion with you all about the future of the store. Of course, if you like today's episode, have some feedback for us, drop us a comment through your preferred podcast player. And if you haven't already subscribed, you'll get the scoop on new episodes when they're available every week. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.